It's Tuesday, January 23rd, 2018. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. Well, yesterday was the 45th anniversary of the landmark Roe vs. Wade decision. And over the weekend, I had the privilege of being a part of the ERLC's Evangelicals for Life conference by speaking on Friday night. The message that I felt the Lord call me to deliver was that being pro-life is not merely rhetoric or legal action, but actually displaying the love of Christ to the orphan, the single mom, the family who's lost their children in the foster care system, and all image bearers made in the beautiful diversity of our God. The Evangelicals for Life conference was, was, like I said, hosted by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, or ERLC, and it was my privilege to sit down with the president of the ERLC, Dr. Russell Moore. We are just delighted to be here with Dr. Russell Moore, and Dr. Moore does such a great job leading the ERLC and has just been such a clarion voice for the church. And Dr. Moore, I'm just I'm grateful for you and for the way you stood up for truth. Um, I, God has given you so much wisdom and wit as well. Uh, I loved after uh, our current president called you a dirty, rotten man, how you just brought that back and said, well, he's true. I am. <laughs> I'm a sinner, but redeemed by the blood of Christ. And so just thank you for the way you stand for truth. And I know that at times, too, you've, you've kind of stood there and taken some heat. But just know that that we're grateful for you and we're grateful that the Lord has you where he is, well, where you, you are. And um, I know you're just a man being used by a great God, but he's using you and we're, we're thankful for you. So, well, thank you. Uh, just talk a little bit about the ERLC and what you guys do and how you're standing up for Christian liberty and how you're standing up for the message of Christ and honestly making the gospel known in the places it needs to be made known. Well, we really uh, have two jobs. Uh, one of those jobs is to equip churches and Christians to think through all of the, the various uh, ethical issues, which is really just a question of how do we follow Jesus. Right. And so uh, that would range from everything from uh, how do you think through marriage and uh, parenting and family to uh, what do you do with uh, infertility and, and the various technologies, what's right and wrong, and uh, how do you decide about if you have an elderly uh, relative and the doctors are saying here are the end of life options what's what's right and wrong there so the whole spectrum of, of issues that are out there and then secondly to speak from the churches to the outside world to government media and others and so that's uh, that's what we do which means that there's never an opportunity to get bored and uh, as someone who's a little bit uh, ADD, it's great because I never have the same thing happening for more than about five minutes uh, to move on to something else. So, um, so yeah, that's that's what we do. Well, what is, you know, obviously you're standing up in a lot of hard places. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you're even getting hit by the home crowd, by the church. Um, and how can people be praying for you and for the ERLC as you're in some of the tough places and tough discussions, like just what are some specific ways people can be praying for you guys? Well, I think uh, to pray for us uh, specifically is just to have wisdom uh, because uh, most of the things that we have to do have to be looking beyond uh, where we would ordinarily be 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 looking uh, in, in a normal time because we have to sort of be the Paul Revere's 
preparing people for what's coming down uh, the pike in ways that that uh, that often uh, sometimes can be jarring. I remember uh, talking to a group of, uh, of seminary students probably 10 years ago uh, about the transgender issue in a way that to them uh, at the time seemed to be some some hypothetical uh, sort of thing. Well, now everybody who's faithfully ministering uh, is encountering uh, that issue in their communities. Same thing right now with issues of artificial intelligence and technology and, and so forth. And frankly, the biggest issue that we face right now uh, probably would be parenting and technology. Yes. And so dealing with all of the various questions, and that's only going to become uh, much, much more complicated so that we would have the wisdom to be able to to be able to perceive where we need to be, uh, where we need to be getting ready. Yeah. I think would be the main thing. Well, I know one of the things in these spaces, too, that we have the opportunity is to make the gospel known mm-hmm. and to do that. And one of the ways that you and, and Maria have certainly displayed the gospel in your testimony, both at Southern Seminary and now at the ERLC and through your writings, is through adoption. Mm-hmm. And you guys started your family through adoption and specifically adopting two boys from Russia. And then the Lord just continued to fill your quiver with five more boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just talk a little bit about how adoption has been a part of the fabric of your family. Well, we did not know what we were doing. And so when uh, when Maria, we, we'd gone through infertility and miscarriages, and uh, my wife Maria came home one day. She, she said, I think I'm going to go to this event at a church near us uh, talking about adoption because I think the Lord might be directing us there. And I was really reluctant at first because we didn't know anybody who had ever adopted at that point. And so I said, well, uh, I'm all for adoption. Let's, you know, I'd love to do that someday, but I was not on board initially. Uh, And so through that whole process, the Lord really not only changed my heart, but kind of exposed ways that I wasn't consistently thinking through uh, the gospel, my own relationship to God as a, as a child. And so through that, though, because we didn't know anybody uh, who, who had done this, there was nobody who could say, hey, this is normal, this is not. The, the adoption process was one of the most harrowing uh, experiences ever because those who've, who've done this know there's, there's this roller coaster aspect to going through, well, what, when is the referral coming and what, 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 when is the home study done and what, uh, and so we just didn't have anybody to, uh, to talk to. And so when we, uh, when we went to Russia to adopt our sons, uh, we arrived there wondering, have we made the biggest mistake of our lives? And are we really able to handle that? That ignorance was hard. On the other hand, the ignorance was actually uh, a blessing to some degree because these, these were our first children. They were a year old coming out of a very extreme institutionalized setting in the former Soviet Union. So that was a very, very difficult uh, couple of years, but we didn't know it because we thought, well, this is, I, this is just what parenting is. Right. So we had two, two very different groups of needs at once. And so we're just parenting them along. And so when we had our first child who came along the more typical way, uh, Maria and I looked at each other one day and said, this is so easy. <laughs> Why do people complain about this? <laughs> so I think if we'd had if we'd had it the other way around, we probably would have freaked out. Yeah. So the ignorance was was helpful there. 
Well, I know the Lord has just even used that adoption story for you to encourage so many believers to get engaged. Uh, I remember one of the first times I went to Southern Seminary was when you did the Adopted for Life Mm -hmm. conference. And it was just a great time of getting church leaders. And you've been one of those clarion voices that have woken up the church to James 127 and helped churches see that that there is something we can do on behalf of the orphan. Why do you think it's so important from a gospel ethic that we care for orphans and widows? Well, I think uh, for, for a number of reasons, but one of those reasons being that the the, the reasons we're often reluctant to do that, uh, again, show us where we've got some real uh, problems in terms of applying the gospel to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, if, if you go in, whether it's whether it's uh, caring for orphans through foster care or through adoption or through ministry in, in various places in the world or uh, caring for vulnerable women uh, or marginalized communities, the whole spectrum, often the reason that a church sometimes is reluctant to do that would be because, well, we don't really want to think about those situations. That's a that's a real gospel warning signal there. Or because we're afraid. And I think it's more the second. It's it's there's a sense of fear. Uh, what what is this going to be in terms of risk? Right. And so if I if I welcome that uh, woman who's in a place of crisis into my home, and maybe she's got a history of uh, drug addiction, or maybe she's coming out of an abusive relationship, or maybe she's been uh, trafficked, and I don't know what's going to happen next with her, there can be a tendency to say, I'm going to just protect myself. Right. From that, and the same thing when God uh, calls someone to adopt. Sometimes there's this th- sense of, well, it's kind of really unpredictable. And so, you know, one I- I'll never forget uh, someone saying to me uh, really early on, said, "Well, I really, uh, I really am reluctant to adopt because with a child that you've adopted, you never know what you're going to get." Mm. And I said, "With any child, yeah. you never know what you're going to get." And so, well, but I just want to make sure that I minimize uh, any sort of risk uh, from from getting my heart broken uh, with this with this child. And I said, well, if that's the case, don't adopt, <laughs> don't have children, don't get married, don't have friends, don't have, because any human relationship is going to bring bring risk to it. So I think sometimes when we start saying, well, why aren't we doing uh, some things? Sometimes it's just because. Well, we've never had a model. We didn't know how to do it. Sometimes it's because, well, we're kind of protecting uh, protecting ourselves. And that's what Jesus is just consistently uh, demolishing uh, through the Gospels. And then James and Peter and Paul and others uh, in the New Testament. Right. And God never promises a pristine life. Never. It's going to be easy. Never. It's always adventurous. Yeah. And it's always crazy. And even if, if, you, if you think your life is pristine and easy, then... Uh, something's really yeah. something probably about about to hit because that's just not the way life is. Well, we can't live our our lives wrapped in bubble wrap and sitting in our homes uh, and truly be about the gospel mm-hmm. and about making the kingdom known in ways. Well, I know being a parent is always an adventure, and I just love for you to tell the story about your favorite drink. You were preaching, or you saw a billboard. Yeah, that was uh, Benjamin. Our uh, our. Oldest, he's oldest by three weeks. Uh, uh, he, and, he and Timothy were born three weeks apart. We're in the same uh, orphanage in Russia, uh, really from the from the very beginning. Uh, but he was just starting to learn how to to read, 
And so we were we were driving down a street in Louisville and he looked up and saw a billboard that said Bud Light. And he said, what is Bud Light? What is Bud Light? I thought, ah, I'm not really going to get into it. I said, it's just a drink that some people drink. <laughs> and uh, I said, but uh, grown-ups drink that, not, you know, some, some grown-ups drink that. Uh, and so I had just started uh, at a church uh, there in, in Louisville and had a group of elderly ladies. I see them standing around Benjamin in the in the foyer of the church. And I walked out and he had just said, do you know what my dad's favorite drink is? <laughs> Bud Light. And I just thought, oh, yeah, this is, what are they going to think about? They handled it well. (laughs) But that just goes, I mean, kids are unpredictable. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't matter if you're adopting or fostering. It's unpredictable. And if if you're looking to, to never be embarrassed or never have anything crazy happen or never have anything hard happen, I think your advice is try don't get married, don't yeah. have a relationship, and don't have kids. Well, and even whether whether you've adopted children, whether you're fostering children, whether you've biologically uh, birthed children, I think the key is uh, the children are not about us. Mm. And so I think there's a sense in which sometimes we want to protect uh, our own kind of presentation to the rest of the world, which is a real, it's always an issue for people, but especially in this kind of era, uh, I don't want you to think ill of me. Right. And then children become a vehicle to that, which is, which is not what, I mean, you you see that even with, um, I, I remember feeling that when I had my, my oldest two sons, we were in a, we were in a Walmart uh, somewhere when they were very young and one of them started throwing a fit mm. in Walmart. And I, I noticed that I was looking around to see if anybody was watching me because I was kind of running through my own mind was, well, I don't want people seeing this fit and thinking, well, that's what adopted children do. Mm. Therefore, we're not going to adopt. Therefore, so what I was doing was just going through the whole global orphan crisis was resting on <laughs> that uh, incident, and that was that was really pride because the issue is my son, right. uh, not about what people think about my son. And I've noticed that even uh, even with uh, often I'll deal with parents uh, with grown children. Who are we had uh, a woman come up to me at a Wednesday night uh, prayer meeting one time where we had had prayer requests coming up from all over the sanctuary, and she walked up and whispered, uh, "Would you pray for our daughter? She's an atheist, uh, and and she's looking around." And I said, "Why are you whispering?" And she said, "Well, I don't want anybody thinking, you know, what did we do that we've got the daughter who's the atheist?" Well, that's that's really a shame to have to protect oneself from one's church. Uh, but I think that's sort of a mentality that's out there in American life so that there's kind of a Christmas card mentality that my children, when they're doing well, that's a reflection on me. And then the reverse, when my children are, are struggling or not doing well, then that's a reflection on me. And that's just not the way that the Bible uh, presents it, especially because every family, every, without exception, in the scripture has uh, difficulties and prodigals and including God. Dysfunction. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so I think we ought to, we ought to not be as, uh, as self-protective of those sorts of things. Right. And as parents, you learn over and over every day as you're humbled 
that really is so much more about the grace of God that your kids are able to do the things that they do. And it's, it's, it's not through any, uh, you know, lack of failure on your part. Yeah. Well, I know one of the great things that you've done now two time, two years in a row with ERLC is the Evangelicals for Life and the March for Life and the conference and just ERLC and, and you particularly have just been a clarion voice for life in so many of these issues. And I know even with what you guys do with the ethics and the religious liberty, really at the center of it is life. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about just, especially here in January, Sanctity of Human Life Month and Sanctity of Human Life Sunday that we've just had. Why do you think it's so important as Christians that, that we embrace life? Well, one of the interesting things about uh, Evangelicals for Life is that we we have uh, usually sorts of uh, two tribes of evangelical Christians that, that come together here. So you'll have one group that are maybe in churches that emphasize life uh, as it relates to the abortion issue, say, and they, they talk about that a lot. And then another group of evangelicals that, that really resonate and understand the biblical call to justice. And so they may be in churches that talk, uh, talk a, a great deal and do a lot of amazing ministries for the poor and for refugees and for others. Uh, and both of those two things need to be held together. So sometimes you have the people who really are, are pro-life as it relates to the unborn who then get a little uncomfortable when you start talking about uh, other uh, people made in the image of God. And you have people who really uh, are, are emphasizing justice and the vulnerable who get a little uncomfortable when you start talking about the unborn and their mothers. Well, both of those two things need to be held together. Right. And so that's that's the vision that, that we really are, are sort of trying to uh, pursue here. But also because... Uh, what we uh, learn when it comes to seeing invisible people mm-hmm. and, and loving invisible people, whether that's the, uh, the, the unborn child in the womb who's deemed to be uh, an unwanted mm-hmm. fetus or embryo, or whether it's that uh, elderly person with Alzheimer's that everyone's forgotten mm-hmm. and just just says just ignore, or the refugee community that uh, everyone's demonizing and, and, and afraid of, uh, all of these various uh, different people, uh, once we learn to see the image of God and the image of Christ uh, there, that teaches us to be able to reflect Christ in multiple uh, places at once, which is why you know, sometimes people come up and say, how do we, uh, how do we get programs in place to deal with X, Y, Z, crisis pregnancy or uh, adoption or uh, refugee ministry or any number of things? Though that's important to think through. How do we do the specific program? But I mean, it's more important uh, just to get a group of people who really are thinking of themselves first in terms of the kingdom of God and who really are, are driven by evangelism and by the, the great commandment. Once that starts to happen, I don't worry about a church or a group of people who would say, we know what kind of how Jesus is calling us. Uh, to people that nobody else is paying attention to. That Jesus is calling us. We just don't know how to make it work. Right. Okay, well, 
The making it work is actually the easy part. Uh, it's having people to start asking the questions, God, what would you have us to do? That's the hard part. Right. Well, I love just the way that, that you've brought these two groups together mm-hmm. and giving practical ways to say, what are we called to do in this space? And one of the things that I've just continually seen in caring for orphans and caring for especially orphans and children that have special needs mm-hmm. is the opportunity to show the gospel mm-hmm. because it's so countercultural. And the one thing about the culture changing is that when you're shining the light of the gospel, it shines so much brighter because it's, it's countercultural yeah. and there's so many opportunities to do that. And one of the things that I'd just love for you to touch on, cause you've had such a voice in this and it is a pro-life issue is racial inequality. Mm-hmm. And as a church, we've really lost that battle mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And we've been behind the eight ball, yeah. but it's a gospel ethic that mm-hmm. Jesus died for a church that is not just white. Mm-hmm. It's not just black, but it's many skin shades. Mm-hmm. And so how is that really a pro-life ethic in, 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 in cultivating racial equality? Well, there, there's a number of reasons. Well, one of the things that, that haunts me all the time is uh, there was a, a congregation that I knew in Alabama that uh, during Jim Crow and the height of the civil rights movement had been completely silent, which meant is a white church and, and the silence meant supporting the status quo. Uh, well, this congregation was, was relatively large. It was relatively affluent. Uh, as time went on, the community changed, uh, in that, in that neighborhood. And the, the demographic makeup changed to where it became a majority African-American church. The congregation remained uh, white and became uh, increasingly elderly and dwindling, driving in from other places. And they, uh, they couldn't understand, well, why can't we uh, reach our community? Uh, well, they would go to their neighbors and say, uh, yeah, will you, will you join us for worship? Will you? And their neighbors all, all remembered uh, when we were being hosed down in the streets, literally, uh, and, and churches bombed, you all had nothing to say until you need us to prop up your already existing church. Well, I think that is a almost Revelation 2 and 3 uh, sort, of, sort of warning about what happens when God... Uh, when God evacuates in terms of, of his blessing. And I think that's a, that is not a danger of the past. That is a danger of the present and a danger of the future, maybe even more so than, than what we have seen in our entire lives. Right. And I think part of the problem is uh, in, a, in a white middle-class American Christian context, often there is this uh, illusion that sometimes is not even is not even conscious, but that Christianity is at the core white American and middle class, mm. and so we're more than happy to have the nations. We want the nations, but we want the nations all sort of centered around that mm. white middle class American uh, uh, middle. Uh, and so sometimes you'll even see this with white American congregations who, when they come to those passages in the New Testament about a Jew and Gentile together, they sort of subconsciously will think, well, the Jewish uh, analog are the, the white middle class American people. And then the Gentiles being brought in uh, is everybody else. When in reality, uh, the Gentiles uh, in the New Testament 
include virtually everybody who would be in that white middle class American category. And most of the church is not white, right. not American, is not spoken English. I don't just mean historically. I mean right now uh, on the planet, much less in heaven. And so to get, I think to to go somewhere uh, on these issues, we have to first recognize that, mm-hmm. and then we have to start recognizing what what does it mean to be in a church together and to do what Paul tells us to do in Galatians six to bear one another's burdens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the big obstacles. Uh, that I think takes place when it comes to issues of racial justice and racial reconciliation will be people saying to others, well, that doesn't matter. Uh, and so there's a, there's an, I think there are a lot of white Christians that would love to have uh, black and Latino and, and uh, Asian American people uh, in their uh, congregations, but they don't want to uh, be involved in all of the, 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 the ways that that's going to change uh, their, their congregation. And so there's a sense of, yes, we want you uh, to be here as long as you are a middle-class Republican who doesn't, uh, doesn't want to talk about any uh, sorts of challenges or issues that we don't already recognize as problems and challenges. Right. That is a, that is a crisis, not only of being unified as a church, but it's a crisis of self, mm-hmm. uh, self-exaltation. And so instead, if we were to learn to count, uh, count one another as more important than ourselves and to bear one another's burdens, then that means that, uh, that challenges that would not apply to one person, uh, that, that means this is exactly the place mm-hmm. where I need to uh, step up. Right. And I mean, that applies not just to, mm-hmm. it applies to these racial uh, reconciliation, racial justice issues. Uh, we ought to have in a congregation, ought to be a white guy, who has never had anybody following him around in a store, assuming that he's shoplifting, he ought to be the one standing up and saying, this is not the way it should be for my uh, African-American brothers and sisters in Christ. Because when you mess with them, you're messing with with me. And the same thing uh, going on uh, in reverse. Um, And so one of the, one of the, just best models, just in a really simple way, I ever saw of this was when there was uh, there was uh, shootings in Dallas. After all of the shootings of young African American men took place, then there was uh, a shooting of some police officers uh, in Dallas, and a congregation the next morning, a white police officer stood up and led the congregation in prayer for the the wanton violence against young African-American men mm. and the injustice of, of that. Mm. And there was a, an older African-American mom who stood up and, pl- and prayed for police officers. Mm. Well, that's, that's exactly the way that it, that it ought to be. Right. And if, if the spirit were to, to do that uh, in, in our lives and hearts, I think that then would also change the way we do so many things. I mean, think about all the squabbles and fights that we have in churches over issues that are really just proxy wars right. for the question of who's better, mm. worship 
wars are that, uh, you know, uh, often uh, budget conflicts are that. I mean, there's so many things. Uh, and so if we don't, if we don't start to say, okay, God, we need to repent and say, what's going wrong here? And then have patience with one another. Yeah. Uh, and, and to be able to say, we're, we're not always going to be able to uh, to know yeah. what what uh, particular burdens are. That's why we need one another. Right. When I think too, uh, and I have a dear African-American brother that's reminded me too, and it's been hard to hear at times as a, as a white guy, mm. but that we need to apologize as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think so many times, and you know with Maria and I know with Ashley, if I've offended my wife and then just want to act like it didn't happen, right. we're not going to have relational unity. Yeah. Uh, and so many of our white churches and our white brothers and sisters have not just apologized for the apathy, like the church in no. Alabama, or for the violence, like many churches. Well, and I mean, I think all the time of what Jesus said uh, to the religious leaders when he said, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, and you go and decorate uh, the graves of the prophets and say, if we had lived in our father's time, we would not have murdered them. Um, that is a very real uh, uh, pressing issue for people to look back and say, oh, isn't it terrible how there were people uh, advocating uh, slavery or there were people who were advocating Jim Crow? That's all over with now. And so uh, so as one person said to me, I just don't know why black people can't get over it. Mm. I said, well, it, well, they can't get over it because it's not over. Right. Uh, and so, um, and so I think that, I think that takes some, uh, constantly asking, what do I not see? You know, what, what in my own, uh, life and, and heart are just assumptions that I'm making, uh, that I'm kind of protecting and I don't really want to trouble. Right. And that goes all the way full circle too, when you think about adoption. And mm -hmm. I remember uh, hearing you and our, our friend, David Prince's church, mm -hmm. Ashland Avenue, mm -hmm. for their orphan or their missions conference one time. And you said something that stuck with me, and I've quoted you several times as I've spoken, that the adoption that we see in Galatians means that we have more in common with the believer in rural Africa that's living in a hut than we do our middle-class white neighbor that's living next door who doesn't know the gospel. Yeah. If, if that if that African, sub-Saharan African knows the gospel and has the, the, the relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel's beating in their chest, they're our brother or sister. Yeah. And we have more in common with them than we do our atheist next-door neighbor yeah. who's far from the gospel. And if we start to realize that, I think it'll change the whole thing. And, and adoption is not just a reality physically as we care for life, but it's also a spiritual reality. Well, Dr. Moore, thank you for, thank you for having me. the way you do what you do and for just holding the banner of our Lord and Savior with such clarity and dignity. And uh, we just, we're praying for you and we're thankful for you. Well, and for you as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again tomorrow for the Defender Podcast.